Okay, welcome to The Scrum, WGBH's politics podcast. I'm Adam Riley with Peter Kadzis. Peter, greetings. Hello, Adam. In this episode, you're going to hear a conversation Peter and I had with Dr. Robbie Goldstein, who is challenging incumbent Congressman Stephen Lynch in the 8th Congressional District Democratic primary. But first, Peter, you and I are talking right after the Democratic National Convention wrapped up with Joe Biden accepting his party's presidential nomination. It was the first nominating convention conducted online as opposed to in person. And you, lucky guy, have watched pretty much the whole thing. What's your take on the proceedings now that they've come to a close? Well, I had my doubts when it began, especially the first night, which I I thought was um, an ode to the Church of Democratic Wokeness. I know that sounds cynical, but that's how it seemed to me. Um, I think the whole convention, very strange though it was, I mean, both you and I have been to political convention, to, to national political conventions. Um, this was sort of spooky and surreal to me. Um, you know, watching it on TV, knowing there's no audience, but that aside, uh, or maybe even because of that, I think the convention has been a real success for the Democrats. Um, I looked at some numbers earlier today, and the um, viewership does not seem to have been what it's been in the past, um, but I don't think that matters. Um, I think on its own terms, this convention has been an unreserved success for the Democrats. Um, I have my own sort of professional reservations about what it all means because, let's face it, this was a giant four-day infomercial. Very skillfully done, uh, very corny in some parts, um, very moving in others. All things considered, not too boring. They kept it moving. I mean, one good thing about this convention is the speeches couldn't go on forever. Everyone was very confident of that. But uh, the bottom line, this was a success for the Democrats, and I think it launches Biden's official campaign in a very strong position. I have to say... I was struck watching Biden give his acceptance speech, which I thought was pretty good, all things considered, as you have said. And I'm stating the obvious here. It's so strange to watch this sort of thing when it's divorced from the spectacle that you get with a massive crowd turning out to witness it live. And I, I think that separateness from, uh, you know, the 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 crowd excitement really highlights that infomercial aspect that you're talking about. I mean, it's still an infomercial when there's a crowd there. You just don't quite notice it as much because it seems exciting. It seems like things are are happening, even though they're really not. There's just a lot of people watching. Nothing of note happened. Uh, but it was, yeah, it was, it was weird to watch him wrap it up, even though, again, I think it was a pretty solid speech. Yeah, I mean, well, first of all, if Biden had blown it, he would have been be beginning this campaign, you know, in a in a weakened position. He gave the speech live. 
um, which heightened the, raised the stakes. And he did a good job. No one's ever accused Biden of being a great orator. He got the job done. He was convincing. But I, I think that's the key to Joe Biden. Just as our colleague David Bernstein wrote about the pick of Kamala Harris as his vice president, the genius in that pick is it was what everyone expected him to do. And by doing what everyone expected him to do, he drew a very sharp contrast to President Donald Trump, whose um, administration is, is sort of a, 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 a whirl of continual chaos. Um, he did what he had to do tonight, and it was just as expected. And in that hammers home the message that Joe, Joe Biden is slow and steady and a good man. This is a campaign that is not about issues. I suppose at some point we will be talking about issues, and I have to say, um, old-fashioned that I am, I can't wait for that. But this is a campaign about are you for Trump or you are against Trump. Every political campaign is like that. You know, I like to cite Richard Nixon, who says that, you know, people who used to say that people don't vote for people, they vote against people. This whole, this whole Democratic convention was giving people permission or persuading them to or reminding them why they were going to vote for Joe Biden. That's a little different than voting against Donald Trump. I mean, um, President Obama's speech on day night three of the convention was very unusual uh, for any ex-president, but especially for Obama, in that he laid it right on the line. He said, you know, Trump stinks. Trump has not been a good president. Maybe he could have grown into the challenge but he didn't even try. That's pretty withering stuff to come from anyone um, who was sat in the Oval Office. Is there anything, since you, you give the convention as a whole uh, a thumbs up for getting done what it needed to get done, is there anything that the Democrats did during the convention or failed to do that you think uh, was a an error? No, no, because... You know, people will be pointing out errors left and right in the days to come. I think what was unique about this convention is it defined itself. You know, it's like a TV show. It is a TV show. I mean, all conventions have become TV shows, but they, they the Democrats, never pretended it wasn't. So the Democrats sort of defined the terms and then fulfilled it. You know, let me run through the days. I think day number one, um, which in my interpretation was an uh, an ode to the Church of Democratic Wokeness, as I already said. Yeah, actually, before you move on to day two, uh, maybe you're going to do this already, but elaborate on that a little bit, because I know what you mean, but some of our listeners might not, although others will. It was an unreserved play on largely identity politics, uh, heavily feminist, implicitly heavily anti-Trump, more than most conventions usually are. I mean, the the traditional conventions of the past 
are all about celebrating the nominees. I think it was from the handful of people I've talked to about this. Look, we're all in isolation. But I, I, you know, reached out by telephone and asked people what they thought and all. If you were a Democrat, you found it a successful night. It reflected to me some of the, the, the potential weaknesses of the Democratic Party, not so much in this election, but in moving forward. And, and again, that, that's the heavy, heavy emphasis on identity politics. Um, identity politics are a fact, but um, as f- I was going through some back files of uh, 538.com, you know, the the political statistical site, and um, was reminded that of the total Democratic electorate, only about 30% of it is far-left progressive, or is, as I'm calling it, woke. So the the flavor we read in the mainstream press, um, which is itself pretty progressive, doesn't reflect the full diversity of opinion. All right, so that was, that was uh, night one. Night two was that the Democrats... Um, will bring you to the promised land. And there, I think, uh, at least to my mind, the convention was uh, on, on more traditional ground. They were using unconventional means, because that's what they had at their, their disposal, um, to imbue their audience with a sense that the Democrats can get you there. The Democrats are capable I'll repeat that. The Democrats are capable of rescuing the nation from Trump. Um, night three, I, I, I think, was very clearly aimed at um, women. And it was aimed at women very successfully. Uh, th- that's really with the exception of President Obama's speech, which was a direct front-on attack on um, President Trump. And the reason it was aimed at women was because that for the Democrats to win big, let's assume they're going to win, um, but for them to win big, they really have to carry suburban women voters. Throughout this whole convention, there were very few nods to working class men many, many nods to working-class women. No, very few direct appeals to white working-class men. And that's because, according to the numbers, they they need the suburban independent women voters more. Now, tonight, in night four, where it's sort of um, come home to daddy night, you, you did see a, uh, a stronger representation in, in bow two, um, white working class men. Um, the 94-year-old veteran of World War II in Korea, very effective. Joe Biden talking long distance to four union members. Uh, good, not quite as effective as the veteran. What made the veteran so effective was um, he confessed near the end that he was, since the 1960s, was a Republican and had voted for Trump. I thought, you know, Biden was true to himself. 
Um, I think those people who have a predisposition towards Biden are now convinced that they've done the right thing. Um, those that are wavering have a, a, a reason to help them make up their mind. Kamala Harris was very effective the night before. Hers was a very feminist and feminine-oriented speech. I would say she was only a half-notch away from being presidential. By that, I do not mean um, it takes years to become presidential. You, you look at Obama and how he was in his first six months, and you look at him the night before last, and you see what a incredible evolution he took as a speech. So the Biden-Harris ticket is firmly established in the political firmament. Now we wait and see what happens next. All right, on to our conversation with Dr. Robbie Goldstein. A quick note before we start, in our convo, he talks about Steve Lynch voting with President Trump to build a wall across the southern border. That is a reference to an appropriations bill that became law in 2018 and that a majority of Democrats backed, although there were a lot of Democrats who didn't. Now, without further ado, here is Robbie Goldstein. Robbie, let me start off by asking you a very obvious but important question. As you know, anyone who takes on an incumbent who's been in office for a long time has to make the case for change. So what is, from your vantage point, the case for change regarding Stephen Lynch? This entire campaign has been based on data and the facts. And what I did going into this race was look at this district and recognize that this district has changed in the past 20 years. This district is very different than 2001 when Stephen Lynch was first elected. What hasn't changed in the district is the representation. But almost everything else has. This is a district that is more progressive than it was in 2001. This is a district that firmly believes in a woman's right to choose and reproductive justice. This is a district that is fighting for racial justice every single day. This is a district that is feeling the impact of climate change every day and wants a champion to move forward with climate change. Uh, this district has changed. And so the case for change in representation is simply to say it's time for a representative to reflect the district here in the Massachusetts 8th. From your vantage point, again, as the guy who's taking him on, has Steve Lynch changed as well in the years that you're talking about? Or has he remained static as a public figure in terms of his beliefs and his actions? I think it depends on the issue that you want to talk about. Um, has he changed his belief on immigration and some of the xenophobic policies that he's pushed forward with? No. He's in the same place he was in the late 1970s. Um, he is voting with President Trump to build a wall across our southern border, voting to take away health care for immigrants in this country, voting for Kate's law to exclude people who are seeking asylum. That's the Stephen Lynch from the 1970s. Um, has he changed on reproductive justice? Well, he still describes himself as pro-life, and I haven't seen him yet lead on any issue related to reproductive rights or choice. Um, has he changed on health care? Again, I don't see him really changing his view on health care. He voted against the Affordable Care Act, and I haven't seen him lead in any way about how to improve health care or expand access in this country. So I'm, I don't think that he has changed in his 20 years in office. I think he's the same person that he was when he was elected in, in 2001. 
And I certainly don't think that he's a representation of, of who lives here in the district anymore. What are the three most important things you are in favor of? The three things that I talk about on this campaign at every single stop, and this has been since November when I launched the campaign until now, is that I talked about healthcare. And I talk about healthcare not as just a question about insurance and access. I talk about healthcare, about living a healthy life and making sure that people have everything that they need for that healthy life. I talk about the climate because it is an urgent crisis that we're facing. And I think- But let, let's, but before we go, let's stick with healthcare just for a minute. Um, do you believe we should have you know, Medicaid for all? Yes, I believe that this is a country that needs to fulfill the promise that healthcare is a human right. To do that, we need a single payer healthcare system. That is called Medicare for all in the current iteration. We can call it whatever we wanna call it. Well, you got the right name, I got the name wrong. But um, that brings us back to the same question that dogged Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, which is, the $34 trillion estimate of what it would cost. I mean, has something changed between the presidential primaries and now to make that cost less than $34 trillion? So with all due respect to, to Senator Warren and to Senator Sanders, I think they were having the wrong conversation during the presidential primary. They were having a conversation about what is the investment that we need to put in over the next four years to move ourselves to a single payer system. What they weren't talking about is how can we afford not to move to a single payer system? How much money are we spending year after year? What is the trillions of dollars that we're spending as a country on our current broken healthcare system? And how are we gonna get a control over those increases in cost year after year? There are great healthcare economists out there that have been thinking about this for a long time. I've looked through those data. I have looked through those reports. I fundamentally believe that the way that we're gonna control cost in the long run is a single payer system that allows for equity and access and allows negotiation of drug no, no, prices. Well, I, 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 I can understand that. And, and I think um, the emphasis on controlling the price of drugs and medication is very important. But what's the price tag for your proposal? So the price tag is, is the same price tag in the first four years that Senator Warren and Senator Sanders talked about. We are going to have to put a trillion dollar, trillions of dollars of investment in healthcare in the same way that we invested in Medicaid and Medicare, in the same way that we invested in the Affordable Care Act, because we know that in the long run, it is the way that we're going to actually decrease the cost of healthcare. That investment is going to come from taxes in this country. It's going to come from closing corporate loopholes. It's going to come from all the things that Senator Warren and Senator Sanders were talking about on the campaign trail. I just think we need to focus on the, the longer game here and make sure that we're having that conversation about we can't afford as a nation to not make a change right now. Right, and then I'll, I'll cede the floor back to Adam in a second. But nationally, the Democrats are running Joe Biden, the centrist, who was America's choice in a large part, in a significant part, because the $34 trillion price tag for healthcare, whether it was perfectly accurate or metaphorically significant, scared the bejesus out of the people. Why will a Warren Biden candidate in Massachusetts be able to make a difference in Congress when the president wants to go in another direction. Another issue that I took with the presidential primary this year was that we were arguing about the very minute differences between people's health care plans and not 
understanding that every Democrat on that presidential primary stage was talking about health care expansion. The road to a single payer system, the road to Medicare for all, is a road that goes through expanding Medicaid in all 50 states, lowering the age to get people onto Medicare, starting with a public option that people can buy into, and then moving as the financial targets allow us, moving us to the single payer system. Everybody on that stage, from Joe Biden through Amy Klobuchar and Pete Buttigieg, all the way over to Senator Warren and Senator Sanders, they were all talking about the same thing. How do we expand healthcare coverage? And I will point out that everyone on that stage came up with a plan and came up with an idea of how to do that. And the person I'm running against in the Democratic primary actually hasn't. He has not yet been able to articulate how to expand healthcare coverage. So I, I hear what you're saying. I hear that we as a, as a Democratic Party selected Joe Biden to be our representative and to be the person who's going to run for president. But I think that he is fully in support of expanding health care. He is fully in support of moving us in the right direction. And he knows, he's a smart man, that this is one step towards where we need to go to guaranteeing health care as a human right, to fundamentally making sure that there is universal access across this country, and that we're going to end up in a single-payer system. Um, that's not what's going to happen probably under his presidency because it's going to take us longer than four years, but it's going to move us in that direction. I see the floor. Before we leave healthcare, I'm wondering as you talk through this stuff, if you feel like you'd be uniquely capable or, or capable, more capable than some other Congress people to make the case that you're making because you are, in fact, a physician. Is that something that were you to become a member of Congress, you think would be an asset as you push for healthcare change? Absolutely. I live in the broken system every day. I sit with my patients previously in an exam room before COVID-19, now largely through Zoom and virtual visits. But I sit with them and I hear about their co-pays. I hear about how challenging it is if they need to switch jobs and what that may do to their health insurance. I hear about what happens if they perhaps live in the state of Massachusetts, but their corporation or their company that they work for is headquartered out of Rhode Island and that they don't have access to the care that they need. I, I think that experience is unique and allows me to create a very convincing argument that will marry the data and the evidence that I think Senator Warren and Senator Sanders uh, laid out in the presidential primary, but put that data together with the real human stories of what it's like for patients in healthcare right now. Peter, I have a, I want to move to a new subject, but I know you are interested in, in the way Democrats have framed the discussion around abortion over the years. Do you want to ask anything about that here? Well, yeah, Robbie, it, it's, it's interesting that, you, you know, you graciously allow that Lynch's position has evolved on abortion. I, I want to say, I'm not sure his position on abortion evolved. He still describes himself as pro-life and says that he's against abortion. I will allow that he has maybe shifted his views on some of the other aspects of reproductive care um, that are part of the conversation. No, thanks. That's very precise. Is there something wrong for an individual to have a private, deeply held religious belief against abortion? There's nothing wrong with individuals having their own beliefs and their own value set around abortion and around reproductive care. There is a problem when the government has that. The government does not have the ability to have a personal belief or a religious-based belief when it comes to reproductive care or health care in general. So any congressman or woman who is personally opposed to abortion 
but won't stand in the way of someone getting an abortion can't hold office. I'm not saying that they can't hold office. I, I think that if, if a representative firmly believes uh, that they are pro-life and firmly believes that they themselves would not want to access abortion care or would not want their family to access abortion care, that's a personal belief that they can hold. The problem becomes when they use that personal belief to legislate. The problem becomes when they use that personal belief to halt the movement towards expansion of reproductive care across the country. I guess I'll lay my cards on the table. I mean, I'm, I'm familiar with politicians who have a personal opposition to abortion and who don't publicly stand in the way of it happening. That strikes me where Lynch is. Um, I'll make the argument to you that I think he's standing in the way. I think he's standing in the way by not forcing the repeal of the Hyde Amendment. I think he's standing in the way by not forcing and leading on the floor of the House to make sure that abortion care is legal and accessible all across the country. Well, the Hyde Amendment is an interesting question, and I mean, it's a valid point of distinction. The Hyde Amendment basically prevents federal dollars from being used uh, to fund any any sort of abortion. And for many years, it was considered a, a, a somewhat of a compromise because by keeping federal dollars out of abortion, it helped to depoliticize the issue. Um, I would say it's depoliticized. It, it, for years, was su- somewhat successful in depoliticizing it. In a nation like the United States, which is a continental empire, Lynch's position is certainly considered conservative in Massachusetts. But in a state like Kansas or Oklahoma or Wisconsin, it wouldn't be. And Stephen Lynch isn't the representative for the Kansas 8th. He's the representative for the Massachusetts. No, no, very good point. But what I'm talking about is a national view, a a national view of the Democratic Party. Um, You think it's more important for the party party to be pure than for the the party to be broad-based? I think it's more important for the party to stand for what is right. I think it is more important for the party to understand what actually was the impact of the Hyde Amendment. The impact of the Hyde Amendment was that black and brown women in this country don't have access to abortion care. The impact of the Hyde Amendment was that folks in rural areas, women in rural areas, don't have access to abortion or drive 60 miles across a state line, have to come back three days later simply to access the care that they should have in their own community. Uh, I think it's time for the party to recognize that if we are going to stand up and say we as Democrats are for health care expansion, and we are for making sure that everyone can live a healthy life. What does that mean? That certainly means that we universalize access to healthcare, but it also means that we universalize access to reproductive care. And and that's where I want the party to go. I am totally fine with people having their own personal beliefs and their own values, but I am not fine with that creeping into the Democratic Party and our legislative efforts, which are to expand healthcare and to expand reproductive care. Okay, no, that's, that's a fair answer. All right, so the other two things you always hit when you're out there campaigning, what are they? The other two things are that we talk about the environment, and I, I talk about it because the real immediate complications of, of climate change are being felt across the district. And then the third is, is racial justice. Uh, in November, I was talking about equity in all aspects of our society. In the beginning of COVID-19, I was having a conversation about vulnerable populations and ensuring that there was equity in our distribution of PPE. 
Uh, as the summer has progressed and as we've had a national conversation around racial justice, we have been sharing that message in a broader sense, but it's the same message that we started with in November. I want to ask you about the report from your campaign, I think earlier this week, uh, about some very problematic sounding behavior by someone. Your campaign sent out a press release talking about vandalism that was being done apparently in a manner that was intended to make your campaign look bad. And also a, a push poll, which I think you guys suggested uh, the Lynch campaign was behind, which was also intended to prey on some people's attitudes about transgender individuals. Can you describe in greater detail the stuff that I just offered a sort of an awkward synopsis of? So I'll tell you what I know, which is that um, sometime between Friday night into Saturday morning, um, a number of windows were smashed in Beacon Hill. Uh, and those windows had Black Lives Matter signs behind the window. Uh, in the shattered glass that was on the ground were campaign yard signs for my campaign that we don't know where those campaign signs came from. I can tell you that we have known and heard from people um, across the district that their yard signs are being stolen, those that were for my campaign, but we don't have an understanding of where those signs came from and why they were left there. Um, what we did was that I immediately contacted the people who were impacted by this vandalism and by the crime. I told them that this was not a part of our campaign. This was nothing um, affiliated with, with me, with my volunteers or with my staff. Um, and that I would work with them well, to figure out what happened. Well, of course happened. it's not. I mean, geez, I've been around politics a long time, but I've never known anyone going around smashing their own. What evidence do you have the Lynch campaign did this? We don't have evidence that the Lynch campaign did this, but what we have said is that we've asked the congressman to publicly denounce these actions, and it's been 48 hours, and he hasn't said a word about it. I don't know. It 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 sounds pretty dicey to me, unless the police come up with something. Well, that, However, as, as we know, and what, what folks from the media are doing is that they're investigating, and it was not us that suggested, it was actually the media that suggested that this may be part of a smear campaign and that the police are investigating that. So we'll have to wait for the final results of the police investigation. I do think in the meantime, it is responsible of the congressman to come out and, and denounce these types of actions from happening, whether or not he's in any way affiliated with what happened. Well, I don't have an argument there, but this whole thing seems a little cute to me. What does interest me are these robocalls. So there, some, from what we know, and this is- Do you have a from, tape of any of them? We don't. It's, it's Massachusetts. Two-party consent would be required for us to record anything in the state of Massachusetts. But has anyone... No, no. Excellent. Excellent point. Um, can you... What's the gist of the call? What we have is that we have supporters from across the district who have contacted us. Yeah. Who have come to us and said, I received a phone call. And in that phone call, there were remarks that these supporters felt were transphobic that these supporters felt were preying on the fact that I am the medical director of the transgender health program at Mass General, that I am a member of the LGBTQ community, that I have fought for the LGBTQ community for my entire career, and trying to use that experience in a negative way against me. Now, by now, the way, I can imagine very well that happening, but what language was used? I, again, I, I wasn't on the phone call and we don't have recordings of this, but from what we were told, is no, that... but not being on the phone call isn't, you, you can't repeat it, to me, 
you can't make a charge like that without having specifics and being able to say the just the gist of the call what were the precise the specifics that we have were that these individuals were called and they were asked about the race the state of the race yeah. they were asked um if their support for me would change if they knew that i worked for the tran- with the transgender community okay. they were asked if their support for me would change if they knew about all of the work that I've done and how I've tried to lift up the transgender community. What we were told is that the word transgender was used three or four times in those calls. And it was always used in a way to try to see if people would change their support knowing that about me and knowing about our campaign. No, I don't have any more specifics than that. I wasn't on the phone. But to me, that sounds like a canvassing call that is intended to prey upon the LGBTQ community and to prey upon the idea that I'm lifting up those that are vulnerable, but that may, um, according to whoever was putting out these calls, that that may be not resonant with the electorate or with the base. Now, I want to say this is the Democratic Party. It is 2020. I'm running in a district that overwhelmingly supported the Yes on Three campaign to extend protections yeah. for trans individuals in this state. This is not what I would expect in the Democratic Party of 2020. Why don't, let me make a suggestion. Why don't you tape, try to get someone to tape a call and have someone threaten to sue you for releasing the tape? Um, I'm dead serious. Look, I grew up in Dorchester where the destruction of campaign signs was sometimes political. It was probably just as often, you know, vandalism by kids, young men, you know, with too much beer or too much pot in their system. The smashing of the windows with the Black Lives Matter insignia is, is, is very troubling. But I don't know, it just, that, in my humble opinion, strikes me as a stretch to lay it at Lynch's feet. The telephone calls, again, in my humble opinion, are problematic. We've seen this technique used you know, whether racially in the South, um, sexually all over, it, it, it's, um, it's a very popular technique in South Carolina, for example, and the Republicans regularly have used it against each other. Yeah, I think Lynch would behoove himself to denounce those. Have you asked him to weigh in on the calls, the, uh, the push polling, as well as the destruction of the, uh, you know, windows uh, and the, the presence of your yard signs? We have. We have. I mean, we put out a public statement where we release both of these, these facts or th- both of these situations. Um, and we've asked for him to denounce hate in this campaign and to make sure that this is a command based on policies and based on issues. I think we have very stark contrast when it comes to the issues. And I think that's what we should be talking about. I know this is the sort of question that candidates in your specific situation probably get annoyed when they're asked. Obviously, you want to win this contest. You want to beat Steve Lynch and be the Democratic nominee. If the race does not go the way you hope it will, uh, will you just head back to uh, you know your work as a physician? You work, as I understand it, in a number of different capacities at MGH. Or do you think that you will be uh, a continuing presence in public political life in Massachusetts, whatever happens on September 1st? Well, I'll answer it briefly with what I tell everyone, which is that I intend to win on September 1st. And so this is not going to be a question that we're going to have to deal with. But Good answer. 
the 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 answer here is that my entire career I have been fighting to care for those that are left out of the system and to make sure that those that are most vulnerable have a voice and that they can move forward in this country and they can live a healthy life. I'm going to keep doing that. Now, that may mean that I am at MGH and I'm doing that from my work in the transgender health program and my work in the infectious disease division. That may mean that I'm doing that in public service, but I can guarantee that what I do, whether it's in Washington, D.C. as the representative for the 8th or at 55 Fruit Street at Mass General Hospital, it is going to be about making sure vulnerable populations and vulnerable people have a voice and have someone who is pushing forward to make sure that they can live a healthy life. Well, I say this with absolutely no side while you want to win. You are a rare candidate who is in a win-win situation in that you are already doing God's work at Mass General and with the communities you serve. I understand the nature of your ambition. I'm not saying that, but it's not like you're a dicey real estate developer or a, you know, um, a, 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 a lawyer of uh, dubious providence who's trying to line his own pockets. Uh, those are noble traditions, I will grant, but... Um, uh, let me ask you. So I, Peter I, basically just endorsed you, Robbie. <laughs> no, I'm no, kidding. I'm, I'm saying that whatever happens in the election, yes. In in I would understand the disappointment that he's a lucky guy in that he's already doing something socially useful and he's hoping to increase his utility. Let me just but, say one thing, if I can, about oh, that. Go ahead. Which is that um, doctors, by nature, are incredibly risk averse. We do not like to make risky decisions because when we make risky decisions, people's lives are at stake. I didn't jump into this race with um, the idea that I wouldn't be able to win on September 1st. I jumped into this race because I looked through the data, because I know that there is a path to victory for a progressive challenger in the Massachusetts 8th. And I think it's really important to just point that out, that, that I don't make risky decisions. I can't. I absolutely can't. I can't in my work in the hospital. This was a decision that was well thought out. There is a very clear path here. We have shown that in the polling that's coming out from our campaign. We've shown that by looking through the data that exists from the, the presidential primary, from prior congressional primaries. We know that from the issues and the polling that exists on the issues. So um, I hear what everyone's saying. I do have a great job. I love my job in the hospital, but um, I fully expect to win on September 1st. A bit of a surprise question, but could you name in public life, two people, one living, one dead, who they don't have to be your heroes. It's not, but a living person and a dead person who, you know, have provided a model for you or that you look up to. Or... This is um, a bit of a running joke on the campaign because there are two people that I talk about a lot. So um, one, the living person, I'll tell you, is Congresswoman Lauren Underwood from Illinois. Um, she is a public health nurse who made her way to Congress in the, the past election, has moved us forward in healthcare expansion, in voting rights, in racial equity, has been a tireless worker over the past two years in the House. And she is a hero of mine. And she is um, the model of a congressperson that I would like to emulate in Washington. Um, the second is, is someone that we joke about a lot is, is LBJ. Um, when I think about presidents and I think about those that I have the most amount of respect for in their process. Now, I'm not saying LBJ did everything right. There are a lot of bad things. The Vietnam War is one of them. But 
um, his deliberative process, his method of moving us forward with a progressive agenda of making sure that he had a broad coalition to get things passed that he needed, both in his work in Congress and then his work as a president, I think are incredibly important models for us all to emulate. Well, I don't know about you, Adam, but it's a rare podcast where I learn something totally new. And the, the, the nurse, now Congresswoman, is someone I'm going to immediately look up. Please do. Good answer. <laughs> Dr. Robbie Goldstein, thank you for taking time to talk with us and good luck down the home stretch. Thank you very much. I had a great time. And that is going to do it for another installment of The Scrum. Thanks to Robbie Goldstein for joining us and to you for listening. Subscribe to The Scrum, rate us, and talk back to us. You can email us at scrum at wgbh.org or find us on Twitter. I'm at Riley Adam, and Peter, you are? At Kadzis, with a capital K-A-D-Z-I-S. Our producer is Zoe Matthews. She is also on Twitter, at Zoe S. Matthews. That's Matthews with one T. I'm Adam Riley. The Scrum is a production of WGBH News.